Thank you. Brother Edwin Allen's bucket extends greetings to the church. The Lord be with you, Sister Marta. May the Lord grant you safe travel to Hungary, and please extend greetings to Seged and any other believers you meet with there. We were away from your midst the last two Sundays. We were in um, <clears throat> Windsor for the All Ontario Sing, and then last weekend we were visiting the church in Avon Road, and I bring hearty greetings from both places, uh, including from Brother Allen. If there's no further greetings or announcements, I do have uh, the list from this morning. <clears throat> For the month of October, the focus of the month is Hope Ministries. And there's a note about a roof. I guess they're repairing a roof. Uh, tonight in Richmond Hill, there will be the area sing, being the first uh, Sunday of the month. It will begin at 7 p.m. since there is no baptism there today. 7 p.m. in Richmond Hill for area sing. We will have choir practice today at 1 p.m., so if we could have some extra help cleaning up uh, so we can start on time, it would be appreciated. There will be a uh, members meeting after the second service to uh, review a few things, so please stay behind for that. And uh, the youth are invited also for supper tonight. We're going to have a, a hot supper tonight uh, before Richmond Hill and uh, just a little bit of time for fellowship. So uh, those who aren't inclined to head back home before going to Richmond Hill can just stay in church with us and uh, enjoy some fellowship and food together. That is all the announcements that I have for this morning. Before we open God's word, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we can approach thee on this beautiful fall day when we consider all that thou hast done. We look around ourselves at the beginnings of the fall colors now and we realize that thou dost not have to make the leaves turn such beautiful colors, but this was for thy glory and for our enjoyment. Thou hast done these things for us. The animals can't appreciate them. For them, this time only means preparation for a dangerous and dark winter. But for us, we see the hand of our creator splashing color everywhere in thy creation. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this opportunity we have to now set aside this time to worship Thee, to seek Thy face, and to order our lives in accordance with Thy word. Be with those that could not gather with us today, those that are sick or shut in, those that are elderly and can no longer join us here in this house of worship. Be with those that are going through special trials of health and um, difficulty. We're especially mindful of Sister Liv Bielek and young Jacob Weinhardt and our brother Leon in Strasbourg Road, and many, Heavenly Father, we could spend more time even listing names of those who have chronic or, or very severe medical conditions. Dear Lord, we know that even as the leaves on the trees uh, have a limited time, we also have a limited time here. <clears throat> but Heavenly Father, we want to pray that if it would be thy will to be with those that are suffering these things, that they may receive a little reviving before uh, each one of us is called home unto thee. Be with them, Heavenly Father, and provide especially for them in their pain. Be with us now as we would look into thy word together and bless us with the presence of thy good and holy spirit. Amen. <clears throat> for this morning's meditation, I'd like to read a, a portion of scripture that's probably fairly familiar from the first book of the Bible, Genesis. I'd like to read from chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, beginning with the first verse. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. 
And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Mehujael, and Mehujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives, the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. And Ada bare Jabal. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handled the harp and organ. And Zillah she also bare Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. I've read the entire chapter. Let's kneel for prayer. Our loving Father in heaven, great is thy faithfulness. Thou hast been faithful to us in all our generations. And thou art faithful to your covenant. You have made several covenants throughout the history of this earth with your people, with individuals. And Lord, you have made a covenant through your son Jesus Christ, through the blood of the covenant. The covenant that was planned before ordained before the foundation of the world through thine only begotten Son. Just as Abel was slain innocently in his innocence, so was Jesus slain in his innocence. 
And as the blood of Abel cried out from the ground, how much more did the blood of Christ cry out? Cry out to even his persecutors, even his murderers, that they would turn to you in repentance. <clears throat> and your son, his blood cries out even better things for us in our generation. In the generation which is known as the last days. And we pray that all would hear this cry. That all would look up as was instructed by the Lord Jesus that <clears throat> if the Son of Man be lifted up, he shall draw all men unto him. Because if they look upon him, believing, they will be saved. And so, Father in heaven, we pray thou this morning as we would hear your word as it goes forth. That each and every heart will be touched, that each and every heart will be moved. But especially those that have not yet known thee. Especially those that think that there's something better in this life to be offered, to be got. Oh Lord, I pray, Lord, we pray that thou would see the end of those things. As many as have sought to please themselves with the things of this life, of this earth, of the flesh, and have come to a point in their lives that they realized what a wasted life it was and how dismally disappointed they are and were. Lord, we pray for Steve Delick as he has also come to that knowledge and realization and his own confession that he regrets that he has wasted his life and could have served you in a better capacity by surrendering his life to you early. We pray for Lily Vukov also as she is struggling with her disease and to recover physically, but we pray that she would now surrender all, give to you everything, and that she'd be able to raise her daughter in the truth as well. And also that her Husband would be convicted as well that this life is but a, a like grass that is cut down in the morning and withers by night, flowers that are hewn down. If it's physical, it will all pass away and perish. We pray for them, we pray for the many in our congregation. Their parents have shed many a tear for. that have longed for and prayed and demonstrated their love toward their children, that they would turn, that they would see their children with them in the courts of glory when it comes the time for them to leave this earth as well. For so goes the way of all flesh. Father, we pray for the sick as we have already prayed for, for Sister Olga Ordog, give her the grace and the strength to endure the pain and the suffering and give her healing, we pray. We don't give up because with thee hope is eternal. We pray that you'll be with her and give her healing and strength and comfort. We pray for Mark Meister who also is going through the same and Ron Vukov and we pray for Sandy Soros, 
as they are also companions in tribulation and trials in this manner. Be with them, comfort, strengthen, uplift, uphold. May your name be glorified still in their lives. We pray for the aged, the shut-in, that have been bedridden many, many years perhaps, or house-locked for many, many years. Be with them, comfort, strengthen them. Pray for Sister Christine and Brother Edwin. We pray for Sister Margaret Nagy with her cancer and widowhood as well. The widows in our congregation, be with them, comfort them all. We pray you'd be with Sister Marta as she travels to see her, her mother in Hungary. May her visit be with her mutually beneficial and joyful. Give her a safe trip there and back, we pray. We pray for this world, Lord, that is on the brink of nuclear disaster. We see the folly of men, the pride of life, the ambition, the greed. Lord, they are marching to a drummer that is not for their best interest, but for destruction the enemy of their souls, the devil himself. Lord, we pray that your will will be done. We don't know how you'll bring a final consummation of this, this age in which we live, but we pray that those of us that are remaining here would remain faithful and believe and trust that Father knows best and you have all things best in mind for your saints and for the fulfillment of your scriptures. Be with us, Lord. Be with the brother that is providing the message as a messenger to you, to us. Father, we pray that you would uh, open our hearts to hear the word and to give you the glory and the praise and the adoration for which you are worthy. We ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name, amen. <clears throat> I've been thinking about this passage of Scripture for a couple weeks now, and <clears throat> I don't know if I'm equal to the expositing of it, but perhaps a few thoughts from here that the Lord has laid on my heart would be of benefit to those that are gathered here this morning. You've heard me say it before, and I'll probably say it again. I, that quote that goes, what we think about God is the most important thing about us, is I see that as being truer and truer the, the more I meditate on that. The example that we have before us this morning is an ancient story. <clears throat> I think everyone that's gone to our Sunday school is very familiar with it. <clears throat> but as I got older and thought about this account a little bit more, there were things in it that bothered me. I didn't totally understand why things had played out in this way, I guess, and what the fault was, say, of Cain. The classic explanation is that Cain offered the wrong sacrifice. God required a blood sacrifice for sin, and he didn't give that. That, at least in its standing alone in that way, never really satisfied me. There are other places where offerings of uh, meal and uh, the first fruits of the land were also appropriate. The Lord required that even. And I mean, he was a tiller of the ground. What else was he supposed to bring? I think there's something more here. I think there's something deeper. And something perhaps that will touch each one here. Two boys. The first two humans naturally born into the world. Cain, the oldest. 
From an early age, it looks like he went with his father to till the ground. That's what his father was, a farmer. God told him in the curse that the ground would no longer yield its fullness because of what he had done. So he went and learned with dad. Abel, I'm assuming the second born, probably stayed a little closer to mom. It made sense that she would be the one that would be watching the flocks, perhaps to start with, since they would be close to the campsite that they lived at, their homestead. I'm not sure. Of course, there's not much written. We can't, it's, it's, it may be worth some time of holy personal conjecture on how these things played out this way, but we can only go with what the word says. We can't, we don't, we should not depart from its text. <clears throat> and the Bible says very little about their upbringing. It just simply says, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, uh, it came to pass that they were to bring their offerings. And so Cain brought what he could produce, the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought the firstlings of the fat and the fat thereof, the very best. And I, I don't think that Cain's offering was substandard in its presentation. He didn't bring God the dregs. But there was something wrong with Cain and his offering. It just says simply, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. I'd like you to notice that it doesn't say, and the Lord had respect unto Abel's offering, and unto Cain's offering he had not respect. You see, the offering and the offerer, or the giver of the offering, are tied together. They're very important. You can't actually separate the two. Christ also taught that. If you remember, as we've been studying um, the Sermon on the Mount, and we, we, we read about the character that God is looking for, you recall the story of the widow and the two mites that she cast in. And Christ said she put in more than all the others, the rich men with their gifts. And of course, he wasn't talking about monetary value. He was talking about the giver tied to the gift because she had given all that she had. Now, why does that matter? Why does giving to God matter? I mean, if God owns everything, why would he require gifts? And why would he penalize us then for not offering the right gift? Because, of course, logically, if we were to pull that apart, we would say, well, wait a minute. If God gave the thing in the first place and he didn't give, give Abel uh, the, the gift of caring for sheep, well, why, why would he require a sheep from him? Or, or if, uh, if, the, if the harvest wasn't particularly good, well, isn't that God's fault ultimately since he's the giver of all things? It's never been about the gift. You see, those who, in the Old Testament especially, who were closest to the heart of God, understood God best. And David said, The cattle on, the hill, on a thousand hills are thine. What wilt thou require of me? The man who laid up gold and silver and timber and stone in abundance for this magnificent temple of the Lord, he realized, and his son also realized, that this was only going to be the footstool of God. Certainly not fitting for the Lord of the universe. So then why do it in the first place? On Wednesday's Bible discussion, we got into this a little bit, that if, if God really does run everything, well then how, how can we be at fault for going against his will? How does our will fit with God's will? Those are deep questions. And they are worth pondering. But one of the things we need to begin with, if we are going to reason about God, is first of all, God is not like us. He is different, apart. The cause and source of all things, the one who predates all things, who has neither beginning nor end. Now, if you can understand that, come see me afterwards and explain it to me, please. Because I can't. I simply state these things, knowing them to be true, but without the understanding to properly explain them. Because my entire experience has been locked in by time, limited by my own power and abilities, and my days will one day end. So when we talk about God, we're talking about another type of being entirely, not a bigger version of ourself, 
but a different being altogether. And through scripture, things are revealed to us about him. And now, inversely, what he requires of us, the type of character he wishes to see in us. And then, of course, why that's important. What was missing in Cain that made him and his offering repugnant or, or um, distasteful to God? The scripture tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, this fear is unlike any other fear you will experience in this world. Threat of nuclear war will not create within you the fear of God. Even threat of hell will not create within you the fear of God. Understand that, please. The fear of God comes from a different place entirely. The fear of God begins when we come face to face, not with hell or our own death, but with God himself. He is a being so vast, so incomprehensible, that we shrink to complete insignificance before him. And yet, in spite of that, he tells us that he loves us. There is to God not only a holiness that is, that is purity, it's much more than that. God's holiness is actually a fullness of all things. He is love itself. He is goodness itself. There is nothing good that is apart from God. Think about that for a moment. There is nothing good that is apart from God. Even in our fallen state when we show goodness, we're only in some small imperfect way reflecting his goodness. Now, when we realize what we are, and we come face to face with a God who is all of that, the only right and rational response is to fall down before him. Read Isaiah and what he says. To realize our own uncleanness, lack, limits, finite nature, and to realize how greatly that contrasts with the greatness that God is. I can do nothing for someone who will not consider this for themselves. The skeptic will sneer. The one, I, the response of Cain is amazing to me. The things that he says to God. But it's also totally consistent with our human experience. You know, thousands, millennia, I don't know how long it separates our, us exactly from this event that happened. But I think in the intervening years, <clears throat> we've become less shocked by sin. Can you imagine the impact of the first murder? And not only murder, but fratricide? A brother rising up against his own brother and killing him when there were only four people on the earth? Imagine the, the, the emotional impact of that. How horrible it was. And Cain's callous nature in his response to God. Here was a man who had no fear of God. None. Christ tells us that God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Cain had neither. He didn't understand what God was like. He didn't understand what God wanted. I think Cain brought, we were, just yesterday, we were in a, a beautiful apple orchard. I had some of the best apples I think I've ever had in my entire life. And I'm not an apple person either. I'm not, I don't care for apples all that much, but these were fantastic. And I can imagine, if I was the farmer, going up and down those rows of apples and examining them, looking for that perfect apple, and having found that perfect apple, thinking, wow, isn't this wonderful? Look at all of that work culminates in this perfect apple. I think he would be, to some extent, justifiably proud of what he, has, he had done. The effort, the, the deprivation, the times going out in lousy weather, uh, the precautions that he had taken, 
the careful pruning, all of the effort that went into that. And at the end of it, the fruit, the good fruit. And there would be some justifiable pride in that, I think, to realize that you had put in effort, that God had blessed it, and here was the result. But to end with exaltation of self instead of realizing that it all came from God in the first place is to have totally the wrong idea about God. And in correlation with that or or a corollary of that that understanding is you have a wrong understanding of yourself and what you are capable of and what you've brought. Cain brought his offering, and I think his offering was very much in the spirit of, here it is, God. Look what I've done. He expected, I think, praise of God. That's why he was so upset when he didn't receive it. But here is the great and liberating truth of Scripture. The good news of Scripture is that we're all sinners. Because now it isn't about what we can do. What if he had been less capable? What if he had some sort of a lack or deficiency that meant that his what his ground produced was not very good. There's certainly bad farmers out there. Maybe they don't last as long as the good ones. That's probably why farming is such hard business. But God, willing to show his goodness, which is one of his character, one of the, 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 uh, the attributes of his character. And when we talk about God, there's imperfection there because we're talking about attributes as if they're separate. He is, like I said, the fullness, the wholeness of the package. Everything that is good. His goodness said, I don't even want those that are substandard, that have some uh, inability or lack to miss out on my goodness. I love them so much that by completely taking it out of their hands and having them realize that the only thing I require them to do is recognize who I am and who they are, that's essentially faith. That that I count as righteousness. That I count as goodness. That man who offers that to me, or woman, I will receive. In fact, I look for those. This is why it's hard for those that have things that they think that they can list as accomplishments or attributes of their own that are praiseworthy, have such trouble with this. I can see I'm clearly better than that person. Therefore, God should select me. God should honor my offerings. No, it comes from a wrong perspective of God. Let's look for a little bit at the conversation here that happens. Just contrast this conversation now in your mind with the conversation between God and Isaiah. Just hold that that thought there while we're reading this. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why are you upset? Why is your countenance fallen? Contrast that to Isaiah in the presence of God, who fell down of his own volition. And he says, Woe unto me! For I am an unclean man with unclean lips dwelling in the midst of an unclean nation. He had the right perspective. So he got to see God in his glory. Cain never saw the glory of God. Do you realize that? Cain never saw the glory of God. He feared him to a degree. He feared the consequences anyway. But it was not enough to make a change. It made no practical difference for Cain. That is the tragedy that is Cain. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. God was predicting ahead of time what was going to happen, and Cain totally ignored it. There was going to be a struggle in the breast of every human over what to do, to do right or to do evil. God warned Cain ahead of time. You know, the Bible doesn't even record what Cain and Abel talked about in that last fateful meeting of the two of them. It just says simply they talked together. 
but it must have been something that made Cain upset. And I don't think Abel was a quarrelous person. From all that we can gather from this little portion of Scripture, he seems to be a gentle man. If you're a rough man with animals, the animals know it. And they don't like you for it. That's why it's an effective therapy for those who have anger issues to work with animals like horses and so on. Because the animals perceive that aggressiveness and don't respond effectively to that aggressiveness. That aggressiveness needs to be tamed. You need to master your own nature in order to train the horse or to work with the animals. Animals can sense that. So I think Abel was a gentle soul. But Cain, maybe asserting his right, maybe complaining about the fact that Abel's offering had been received and that he had been so hard done by, finally fell into some sort of a rage and slew his brother. It doesn't even tell how he did it. But blood was spilled. The blood of a brother? You know, the Civil War in the United States still grips the imagination of people. It's, to this day in the summer, they do reenactments at some of the famous battlefields. Uh, men that are there begin growing their beards the winter before so that they really look the part. Some of them intentionally starve themselves so that they look like the emaciated Southern soldiers. And you think, well, what, what is it about this particular conflict that uh, so motivates people to become so part of it? Well, it's simply the idea that that war was a war of brother against brother. I think that's what, that's what gives it the pathos. That's what gives it the, the, the moral weight. The horror of war is bad enough, but brother against brother, how much worse? Finally, he slays his brother. And the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel, thy brother? Now, whenever God asks a question, it's not to find something out. The question is always for our benefit. When he asked our first father, where art thou, Adam? It was not because God had somehow lost track of him. God asks these questions for our benefit. And I think even when, when there are things in Scripture where it talks about God changing his mind or repenting him of things, in order to do that, there has to be some sort of a lack in his nature, and there is none. So why would, it, why would the Bible characterize a great God in that way, using that language? Again, it's for our benefit that we would understand the, the, the heart of God. We make our choices in time, yet God's will is manifest outside of time. He completely encompasses time. When the Bible says that God fills heaven and earth, that doesn't mean just fills to the limit of them. He fills heaven and earth like the sea fills a bucket when the bucket is submerged in the ocean a mile down. Yeah, the bucket's full. But the bucket itself is, 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 is encompassed in all directions by the ocean. That's how great God is. So a God that is so great, why would he say this? Is it not in an effort to show us the character that he's looking for in us? That we can but then of a certain thing, or, or he was entreated for the sake of someone? Isn't that for us, that we would also be ready to be entreated by others looking for mercy? When we begin understanding those things, we're starting to understand a little bit about a God who is so great that his center is everywhere and his circumference is nowhere. He's that big. You know, there was a the last few parting shots from the Voyager spacecraft that was sent out beyond the farthest planet. It sent back pictures, of course, of the planets as they went by. And the final couple pictures, I think, that were transmitted back by radio signal to Earth 
was of our little blue globe. A fleck, a tiny speck in this massive cosmos. And the commentary was, every emperor or king who has ever lived and dreamed of expanded empire, everyone who has ever loved or hated, lived or died, did so on this tiny little speck. That was the extent of their room that they had to stretch in. And for me, at least, it gave me a sense of that verse where it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? What else is there in this, in this, in this grand universe of which scientists themselves say there is an end? What else is here? And then by extension of that, how much greater is God? The one who encompasses all of that, who begins when the universe ends. That's a big thought. It's too big for my mind. But that same God that would come down and care about what we offer and how we offer and what our character is, He's so big, he does it for our benefit. That's the thing, I think, that really strikes me in all of this, that the God of the universe would bend down to have this conversation with this wayward son of Adam in hopes that he would turn around and come back. But in his knowledge, knowing also that he wouldn't, and yet doing it anyway. Have you thought about a God like that? What will you do when you come into his presence? Because you will one day. One day you'll stand before him. I can't tell you when. But I know that of a thousand questions, you won't be able to answer one. And then what will you do? Will you make the wrong assumptions, like Lamech did? And think somehow that, well, if God was willing to avenge Cain sevenfold, well, 77 for me. No. Lamech knew less about God than Cain did. And this is what happens. We see in the line of Cain and in the line of Seth the divergence of the human race. And the last verse that we read together says, In those days, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's the most important thing we can do while we're here. Realize who God is and who we are, and realize that the only thing that we can do is call out to him. Knowing that we're unequal, knowing that we, you know, Cain's, Cain's comment to God is, is stunning in its audacity. God asks him, where's your brother? And he says, well, I don't know. Am I responsible for him? Am I my brother's keeper? Didn't he realize that God was everywhere and knew everything? Hadn't he picked up that, at least, from his father as they worked together, perhaps side by side? The irony, of course, is for those who have decided against this, who would be their own God and seek their merit like the sons of Cain did in other things. Technology, the arts, music, wealth, expansion. I can do nothing for you and neither can the word of God. God will never force us. He's too great for that. He made us in his image. And God is not like my children sometimes are. You know, they give something and then they take it back, right? It's like, oh, I didn't really mean to give it to you. No, no, when God gives, he gives. And we become responsible for the gift. So when he made us in his image, even though that image was spoiled, the gift was not snatched back. We're still in his image. He still respects that will that he gave us in the first place, that autonomy that we were given. And he says actually to us, thy will be done. What will you do with that will?
And may God add whatever was lacking to what was said. Amen. Would our brother please select a hymn? Thank you. Hymn number 163, the first three and the last two verses. 163, the first three and the last two. Szerető mennyei atyánk, mennek és földnek teremtője, leborultunk eléd, hogy megköszönjük, a te jóságodat, a te gondviselésedet rólunk, hogy úgy szeretted ezt a világot, hogy a te egyszülött fiadat küldted, hogy aki hisző benne, el ne vesze, hanem örök élete legyen. Menjei, atyánk, mi nagy kegyelem számunkra, hogy megadtad számunkra, azt, hogy amikor hívtál bennünket is, meghallottuk a te hívásodat, hogy megnyitottuk a mi szívünket, befogadtuk, és elindultunk a hozzád vezető úton. Köszönjük néked, atyánk, hogy a mai napok is megsegítettél bennünket,
hogy megálltunk a mi fogadásunkban. Adj nékünk erőt továbbra is, hogy amíg itt a földi életbe tartasz bennünket, hűséggel, igazsággal, a Te igét szerint tudjunk élni, hogy az emberek meglássák a mi cselekedeteinket, és a Te nagy nevedet dicsőítsék, hogy vágyodjanak megismerni Téged, hogy vágyodjanak a Te közelségedbe lenni. A világban oly sok küzdelem van minden ember számára, hívőnek, nem hívőnek egyaránt. De oly jó nekünk, atyánk, hogy van nekünk mindig, hogy hova forduljunk a mi küzdelmeink között, mert te megígérted, hogy velünk maradsz a világ végezetéig, hogy nem hagysz el bennünket. Oly sok háborúság, küzdelem, betegség, félelem van ezen a földön. Te jó tudni, atyánk, hogy ez mind a te akaratoddal történik. Adj nekünk élő hitet, hogy benned vízva, benned reménykedve éljük a mi életünket, hogy te tudod jól, mi válik számunkra, mi válik számunkra, ami javunkat szolgálja. Köszönjük neked, hogy vágyódunk a te igéd után, hogy vádodjunk megismerni téged. Bocsáss meg nékünk, ahogy sokszor megbotlunk, elfeledkezünk hálát adni néked, néked, aki árasztod ránk, a te áldásodat, akkor, amikor helyesen cselekszünk, és akkor is, amikor nem. Segíts bennünket továbbra is, hogy tudjunk világosság lenni az embereknek, akik még nem ismernek téged. Áldj meg bennünket, hogy a mi szeretteink, akik még nem ismernek, hogy megismerjenek téged, hogy elfogadják a te igédet, hogy elinduljanak a te hozzád vezető úton. Menjei, atyánk, áld meg a mi barátainkat, akik hallgatják hétről hétre, napról napra a te igédet, hogy el tudjanak hozzád indulni, hogy meglássák, az ő bűnösségüket, és megtérjenek hozzád. Köszönjük neked, atyánk, hogy te hűséges vagy, hogy te megbocsátó vagy. A te fiad az Úr Jézus érdeméért cselekszed mindezeket velünk, hisz nekünk nincs semmi érdemünk. Könyörgünk, atyánk, a beteg testvéreinkért hogy sokan vannak, akiket ismerünk, hogy a betegségbe vannak, küzdenek. Gyógyítsd meg őket, atyám, adj nekik békességet, adj, adj, hogy hozzá tudjanak fordulni, hogy benned legyen bizodalmuk, hogy ne inogjanak meg az ő hitükbe, mert tudjuk jól, te a javunkat akarod, és mindnyájunknak meg kell állni a te fiad az Úr Jézus ítélő széke előtt. Menjei, atyám, hallgass meg, ami gyenge, botladozó imánkat a te fiad az Úr Jézus érdeméért. Kérünk, amen.
hymn number 232, verses 1, 2, 4, and 6. 232, 1, 2, 4, and 6. At the beginning of uh, the service, my mind immediately went to 1 John chapter 2, where there's a commentary on Cain and his attitude and why his uh, sacrifice was rejected. Verse 11 of 1 John 2 says, For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And why slew he him? Wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. It is, the clue is, was given in Genesis 4 why Cain's sacrifice was rejected. God asked him the question, if you did well, would your sacrifice not be accepted? It appears from John chapter 2, 1 John 2, we, we just read that 
Cain never loved Abel. And as we heard in the Beatitudes, the fruit of hate, the fruit of the lack of love, is murder. He that hates his brother is a murderer, John says. And Beatitude says, he that is angry at his brother without a cause is guilty of the counsel, will be guilty of the counsel, and then the judgment. And then he that says to his brother, Raka, you fool, you empty head, you good for nothing person, can you believe it? He's in danger of hellfire. How many times have we said anything to our brother that was putting them down, that was derogatory, that was critical, that was slanderous? Jesus said, you're in danger of hellfire if you say you're a fool. The other aspect here is from the other beatitude, being poor in spirit. It talks about not being proud, not being self-exalted, but abjectly poor, that you have nothing to offer God for him to accept you in righteousness. C.S. Lewis in his, I believe it was Mere Christianity, in the chapter he called the greatest sin. Can you guess what that greatest sin is? It's pride. And he said in Mere Christianity there that, that it is not that men want to be good or they have pride in being good. It's their pride is about being better than others. It's a comparative sin to be better, as long as I'm better. That means I'm number one. The world is full of that. The goat, you ever heard of the goat? Greatest of all time. Who is the greatest of all time? And there's so many debates. Is it Federer? Is it Djokovic? Is it Nadal? Is it Ronaldo? Is it whoever? As, as long as he's the greatest of all time. That's the root that I believe is the root of all sin, is pride. Who's going to be number one? I remember at one of our Sunday school picnics a long time ago, I got on a video. And I'm not going to mention who, but the men, the boys were having a tug of war against whoever else, and they won. And I see these, these kids going, we're number one, we're number one. It's kids. But it's ingrained in us. You don't have to teach a child to sin and to be proud. And I'm glad that now that they're adults, they've converted and realized who's number one? Jesus Christ. He's the head. So we have to be very careful that though we may be exercising the gifts that God has given us, though we may be doing what we believe God is, is right in God's eyes, that we're doing it for the right reason. 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I have speak with tongues of angels, right, and, 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 and if I give my body to be burned and I give everything to the poor, he says, without love... I'm nothing. I'm a clanging brass, tinkling cymbal. And it means nothing to God as far as acceptance in his sight. And here's the thing. What do you need to love? What is at the basis, at the foundation of love? It's being poor in spirit. It's being humble. It's saying, he matters more than I do. Love has to be humble. Love is humble and submissive. 
Love says, you're more important to me than I am, and I'm going to give you what I have, because I want to give you my possessions so that you can have them, because I love you enough. And parents know that. Husbands should know that. That you're more important than me. And Jesus said, you are so important to me. You are so important to me. I loved you so much that I gave my life, I forfeited my life, eternal life, on the cross of Calvary, who through the eternal spirit sacrificed himself, Hebrews says, that I died for you because I loved you. I believe that was the, that was the, the sin that even though there was no law at that time, but that was a sin, I believe, that Abel, that Cain had against his brother. He says here very clearly, he didn't love him. Why? He was jealous. He was proud. And that kind of a heart, that God doesn't receive that kind of a heart. It doesn't matter what you give him. It's the heart that he has rejected. So this is a big lesson to me. This is a big lesson to all of us. That if we are poor in spirit and humble, then we will say, God, I am nothing. I will keep your commandments to love my brother and my sister. And faith works by love. And in order to love, you've got to be humble. May the Lord bless the word to our hearts. To him be the glory evermore. Amen. This concludes our service.